The Start On Demand. On demand. Greetings! Pete's Place has closed in Osborne Village after only six months in operation at the corner of Osborne and Stradbrook, just months after another restaurant closed after being there for only two months. Is that location cursed? Also, does Canada need changes to its laws on medical assistance in dying? Plus, the host of Tech It Out, Mark Saltzman, joins us in studio with some great gadget ideas for gifts. I'm Brett McGarry, and alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb, this is the podcast for The Start with Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Yet another restaurant on at the corner of Stradbrook and Osborne has gone down Pete's Place, shutting its doors after... Six months six of operation. Months, yeah, that location's seen, I think, six, five or six different restaurants. One of the same names twice because it was Basil's or Basil's. I'm unsure if that's the right pronunciation. Do you, yeah, do you know if it's Basil's? I think it's Basil's think, myself because so? it was okay. a name. It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't named a, the, like, name of the, of the entrepreneur, yeah. uh, the, the, the restaurateur. So. But you spoke about the, the folks from Okanora and the, and the determination of business and Pete's Place. You know, they worked real hard. They had an establishment on Main Street. They've, they've been well-known. And uh, to move to the village, you'd think would be an upward kind of a up the ladder kind of movement. But boy, that place, it feels like it's cursed. I feel for them I've this got morning because they worked, they worked really hard to get that working and it's not now. So I, I know that Osborne Village has become such a livable part of our city, a place where people want to live. There have been so many condominium developments taking place in that part of the city that on-street parking is essentially non-existent mm. because some of the some of the condominiums are expensive they only come with one parking spot a lot of people if you're a couple you've got two vehicles yep. and you pay for one spot and you f- take your chances with the on-street parking for the other and i think it is really hampering the opportunities for people to just to come by and drop by the village you know well, let's go to the village we'll go hang out we'll find a place to well, grab a drink good luck finding parking it draws a whole attention i think to what is like our culture of the car in the city right. still and our expectation that we should get those parking spots because we've had them for years no matter if you go to the exchange or the bit osborne things are changing but things are changing you have more people living down there both those like downtown and the exchange and in osborne village corridor area so you have all these the masses are coming like we wanted but then what do we do as just the people who want to go there to shop or eat, right? And so that brings in the transit question and that whole that whole argument. But yeah, the popu- population growth isn't enough to offset the amount of people that aren't coming to the village. So it's not self-sustainable. It's not reached that tipping point yet where, oh, well, there are more people living in the village, so the businesses don't need folks from the other parts of the city. We're not there yet. And so they're, they're, I think they're in a little bit of a quandary there. And another thing, too, there is a parking lot right beside Peace Place, but it's a paid parking lot. And for a family-driven restaurant, if you're a family and you say, well, we could go there and pay for parking to park in Osborne Village, or we could go to Restaurant B and not pay for parking. So it's a tough sell, and I get it. And that's not it's not Pete's Place's lot. No. That lot's been there for forever. It's not the paying for parking for me. It's the finding the parking. I guess if the parking was 20 it's not cost prohibitive. Like it's, what it would be, 6 bucks maybe to park down there yeah. for an hour and a half. 
it's not that, like I get that that costs that up for every family, but to me, it's just getting my kids and walking and finding the the spot and you know the hiking through the cold. Well, the reason why this is well, there are a few reasons that this is of note. One, it's the fact that this is the umpteenth restaurant in that location. It just opened a few months ago and it closed. Prior to that, it was called Ward One, a New Orleans-inspired restaurant with Cajun cuisine. That lasted two months. It opened December 2017 and shut down, I think, at the end of January 2018. Before that, it was a place called Black Rabbit Bistro Lounge. That lasted a couple of years. Before that, it was Basil's, which was actually, there was a time where it was closed for years, and then it reopened very briefly, and then it closed again. So it just seems that that location is cursed and is too bad for Pete's Place, and they put a rather touching statement on their website. Yeah, regretfully, after almost 18 years in business, we must close our doors for good due to the unexpected problem problems during our relocation from Main Street to our chosen location at Polo Park. We let our emotions take over and rushed to reopen the doors at the first viable opportunity. We missed our customers and we missed cooking. Pete's Place was our life. We sacrificed everything we had to make it work, but it just didn't. Due to the extremely high overhead costs, lack of accessibility, and lack of parking for our customers, we just couldn't get enough customers through the doors than what was needed to break even. And they go on to thank their staff and uh, those who did patronize their business for 18 years on North Main. If you could get a table... You were lucky at lunchtime. Yeah, we had, uh, remember when we had a conversation, I think I was asking about Reuben Sandwich, best mm-hmm. place to get a Reuben Sandwich, yep. and many of our customers said Pete's Place, and I went to Pete's Place uh, last month, a couple of months ago, tried a Reuben Sandwich, it maybe was the best in the city, and the service was outstanding. You could tell that they really cared. It's like the, the quintessential family-run yep. shop, right, where it's, I think, is it a husband and wife, Pete's Place, and they work hard together, and I, I feel like they just opened Canada Day. Yeah, it's really too bad. It was uh, it was uh, the the warm staff, great food, but uh, just that yeah that spot in Osborne Village, just nothing can. It's it's a weird restaurant. If you've ever been there, it's a strange room. It's yeah, interesting. It is an odd don't room. they have that gorgeous courtyard in the middle though too? Like they it's do, got... but obviously that's only available for, for certain sure. times of the year. I, I the, the location of the bar breaks up the room oddly. Uh, yeah, just that. Do we send condolences for something like this? For I sure. think we do. And yeah. a big question about what to do there and also just parking in the village because it's so popular. Is that what's stopping people? Like, I don't know. Mackley McGarry McNabb, Jeff Braun is here. Jeff Fortier is here. Gerilyn Witchers, Red River College intern, is here as well. Yeah. Last time I put an intern on the uh, air without at- clearing it with management, yes, I got in a lot of trouble. So <laughs> don't get me in trouble, Gerilyn. It was uh, Tristan Field Jones, by the way. Oh, really? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> That's of trouble. Course. He asked to do a newscast on the weekend, so I said, okay. And uh, and at the time, Cluche was uh, he called and said, "What are you doing?" (laughs) Well, clearly you saw something in Tristan Field Jones that maybe the rest of us didn't see. I did. Uh, We still are looking and searching for exactly what that is. It's not there. Yeah, (laughs) I was also probably just tired and didn't want to read the news, so I made Tristan do it. So right now we want to talk about everyone's favorite place. The doctor's office. Waiting room. I hate when they make you wait in the room. Because it says waiting room. There's no chance of not waiting. Because they call it the waiting room. They're going to use it. They've got it. It's all set up for you to wait. 
And you sit there, you know, and you got your little magazine. You pretend you're reading it, but you're really looking at the other people. <laughs> you know, you're thinking about them, things like, I wonder what he's got. Yeah, so uh, my problem wasn't in the waiting room. Mine was even just getting to the waiting room. I had a doctor's appointment this week, and I had it in my calendar that it was on Wednesday, December 12th, but for some reason I didn't put the time in. I remember writing it down, but I don't remember where I wrote it down, where I put it. So I had to call the office. I called them on Tuesday to confirm. And this is somebody, like, this is a specialist I've been waiting to see for six months. Earlier this year I had my issues, these some prostate issues, and guys, get checked. Don't be afraid yes. to talk about it. Uh, so I got checked, and I, I'm okay now, but I figured I'll keep this appointment, and maybe I can glean something from this doctor so I didn't want to reschedule. So I called the office, and uh, I had to leave a message. And they called me back while I was driving, so I didn't see it because my phone was in my pocket. So I called, and they called, and they leave me a message, and I asked them in my message, can you please tell me what time my appointment is? So they called me back, hi, this is a message for Brett, can you please call us back? All right, fine. So I call them back, and the phone rings and rings and rings, and then nothing. I call them back again. It doesn't ring. I call them back again. It doesn't ring. I call them back. It rings, and then it dies. I called them like 10 times. Couldn't get through because clearly their phone system isn't working. Finally got through an hour later, left another message. They call me back and say, how can we help you? And I say, well, and I'm thinking, what do you mean? How can you help me? I left you two messages asking you when my appointment is. All you had to do in the first voicemail was tell me when my appointment is. So I say, I'm looking to confirm my appointment. She says, okay, what's your last name? Like, you know my last name. You just called me. <laughs> so anyway. Uh, and then when I was sitting in the, the waiting room yesterday, I heard one of the, the people behind the counter say, yeah, I think we're having problems with our phone system. <laughs> D, I think. <laughs> so that's my doctor's story. Wondering if, uh, Jeff, you like, you're a cantankerous fellow. You must no. have an observation from the doctor. I haven't been in like two years. I, can, I can't really recall the last time. And, and in the office, it's not bad. I, I'm like Jerry. I look around and just wonder what people have. And if I see a guy with like an ice pack on his ankle, I s try to sit beside that guy because like at least a sprained ankle is not contagious, you know. So. <laughs> you Waiting the, room strategy. Yeah. Oh, and the good. one I go to, the waiting room is really small. And you go up, you get there and you go to the, the person at the front and they ask you, I'm like, I'd like to see a doctor. Because if it's, it's also a walk-in clinic, right? And they're like, well, what's the issue? And everyone can hear whatever you say. Silence. Yeah. A hush falls over the crowd. Oh, yeah. And they do because they're all listening in. They want to know what's wrong with you. And then and I never know what to say because – and I'll tell them the most embarrassing thing, whatever's wrong with me. And then I'll complain to my friends that I've done that. And they'll say, well, just say you need to see a doctor. I was like, well, they know that. Otherwise, I wouldn't have shown up there. So I never really know what to do. Do you have to tell them? Like your deepest, darkest secrets to the receptionist? It's weird. Uh, apparently, it affects either how long you wait or who nah. you're going to see. Probably. Yeah, that would Why? make sense. What do you well, mean? It's a walk-in clinic. They make priorities sometimes. Oh. Yeah. I'm just, just a guess on my part. Because it always seems like when the doctor comes in, he, then he looks and he's like, oh, so this is what's wrong. It's not like he's been thinking about it for 10 minutes <laughs> He hasn't been time. noodling yeah. it. Yeah, no, so, no. I don't know. Geraldine, that, that's the frustration I run into. Geraldine Witchers, Red River College Creative Communications intern. Have you a story to tell about the doctor's office? 
Uh, well, not so much with the doctor's office, but like with dealing with the doctor. First of all, I have a great doctor, so I don't want to slam her. But a little while ago, then uh, I needed a refill on some medication. I had kind of lost track of it. And uh, and so, I, you know, the pharmacy will send a fax or whatever faxes uh, to them. <laughs> and, then, and then they right? just like send, they like, it's like, okay, yeah, sure, give her some more. And then they'll send it back, except that um, the doctor just didn't get back to them. And mm. uh, meanwhile, my medication is dwindling lower and lower and lower. I'm out. I've been out for a couple of days. And it's like, really, like, you have to give me this medication. And, you know, and meanwhile, I actually had, you know, health problems because I was out of medication. So, and then, so it's just like, just call them back. Like, can you do something about this? <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't and know why like, they don't oh, read. Oh, yeah. Let's, okay. Yeah. Well, sure. I'll leave a message for the doctor. And I don't know why when those, when the doctors do re-up those prescriptions that way via fax, why don't, why they don't make it multiple prescriptions instead of just one. Uh, they, then they just eliminate this back and forth, make it easier on everybody. Yeah. Well, just the mere fact you mentioned the word fax just tells you all you need to know about some of the communication that goes on in between these different departments and the and the different doctor's offices. So, yeah, I, I think maybe an upgrade from the fax is in order. Let, let's start there. <laughs> And right now we want to talk about this headline here. This is from the Canadian press. Experts struggle with ethics of assisted death for people with mental disorders. Well, a medically assisted death is something a growing number of Manitobans and Canadians are choosing. Right now the law only allows medically assisted dying for incurably ill adults who are suffering intolerably, intolerably and that are already close to a natural death. But it excludes minors and those suffering strictly from mental disorders. But is the current law too restrictive? A working group was asked to delve into that issue and yesterday released its thoughts on the matter. And for more on what was said in their report and how advocates are reacting, we're joined by James Cowan, a retired senator and advocate with the group Dying with Dignity. Good morning, James. Good morning. So there's a lot to parse through here, and it's a big issue for everybody. But the one the one thing that it seems they couldn't agree upon was what, what should be done for those living with mental health issues who may want to end their life. Well, I think it's it's not only people uh, who have mental health issues, but it's people who have other, you know, cancers of various types, which are progressing very, uh, very rapidly, and whose death is is foreseeable within the meaning of the law, but are concerned that they will lose capacity uh, before they wish to, to wish to die. So uh, we had a case in my home province of Nova Scotia just recently, uh, a remarkable woman named Audrey Parker who had uh, uh, cancer which was progressing rapidly, and uh, she, she had been assessed under the current law and found to qualify for medical assistance in dying. Um, and, uh, and she wanted to live until after Christmas because that was her favorite time of year. But because of the concern that she had that the cancer would affect her capacity and that she would no longer be uh, able to consent and, and to confirm her consent at the time she wanted to die, she died two months earlier than uh, had medical assistance in dying two months earlier. So her life was shortened because of the restrictive nature of the current law. So I think it's it's not just those folks who um, have or might develop um, Alzheimer's, uh, dementia of uh, various types, but other people who uh, have uh, a, a real fear about um, and are suffering 
but uh, don't qualify under the current law. So I think the, the panels, which reported yesterday's report, and they're voluminous reports, the, re- the, the panels have really done a marvelous job in gathering together all the available information and laying out various options for, uh, for discussion. But there is there is time there. The time is now to act for in in some certain areas. I agree, uh, James. Uh, I think for a lot of folks, when we were debating this issue and whether or not we wanted to be a part of Canadian culture and Canadian life and an option for Canadians, uh, I don't know a lot of people that were dead set against this. But now that it's come into practice, are, are you finding that there are some that maybe were in favor? of this option backtracking a little bit now that it's implemented? I haven't heard of any uh, folks that way. I, I, I think rather it's gone the other way, that people who were concerned legitimately about us venturing as a country into new territory, uh, that maybe we've gone too far. I think that the, the most folks that I know who have considered this issue and, and looked at it carefully have concluded that we haven't gone far enough and that there are some gaps in the law and gaps in some practice which need to be need to be addressed and i think the work that these panels have done whose reports were published yesterday is 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 really what, exactly what we need and now is the time for some action in some limited areas some areas uh, like mature minors and and the issue of of mental illness require a lot of talk a lot of discussion by a lot of people and a lot of engagement and i think that the panels have given us all the material that we need to move forward is it worth chasing after getting this change, though? Because the government has been fairly firm in indicating that they have very little intention of even discussing it. Yeah, I was, it was unfortunate. I think that uh, when uh, the case that I spoke about, the Audrey Parker case, uh, was was reported in the media, the Minister of uh, Justice said, well, we think we've got the balance right and we have no intention of amending the law, which I think was a very unfortunate statement. Uh, considering that she had commissioned these studies, which she hadn't yet reported. And I think that now that we have the studies, I think we need to have a discussion as a society uh, and and consider changes. But I think in the, there are some areas where we really could move forward, particularly in the area of advanced requests. And you take the, take the Audrey Parker case that I speak about. You know, the, the, one of the peculiarities about the law as it is now is that you not only have to be mentally capable of understanding what when you request medical assistance and dying of understanding what you're doing and be, be competent and everybody agrees with that but then th- then you also have to at the very time when medical assistance and dying is to be provided you have to be co- you have to be competent and as we know people do sort of slide uh, from competence to incompetence either as, as a result of the progression of their disease or because they're taking powerful drugs to kill the pain that's causing the suffering in the first place. And they have to, you know, those drugs have to be withdrawn in order to bring back capacity. So, I mean, that's a a a horrific um, outcome that you would force people to go through that agonizing pain that brought them to that state in the first place. And just in order to confirm, yes, I really do want medical assistance in dying. So in the case of somebody like Audrey Parker, she was perfectly capable. She'd been assessed. She'd been approved for medical assistance in dying. But she was afraid that she would slide into incompetence, into incapacity, and wouldn't be able to confirm at the moment she wanted to have medical assistance in dying that that's what she wanted. That's an easy fix. 
And I think the government should take leadership here and, and do it. Other things they perhaps need to, to, to we need to have some more discussion about. And, uh, and, and I think, as I said, the, the, the panel reports are, are an excellent uh, knowledge base for us to work from. James Cowan, retired senator and advocate with the group Dying with Dignity, joining us live today on CJOB. Thank you so much, James. My pleasure. It's Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. And Mark, Mark Saltzman is here. Hey, guys. Check it out. Hey, man, how are you? Oh, it's when I see you in person. I'm well, thank you. You're You're like Haley's Comet. (laughs) Just coming through, just flying by. Uh, Yeah, so I know a lot of the listeners think I I live in Winnipeg, and I'm here enough, uh, but uh, no, I do live in Toronto. Don't hold that against me. So I host the show remotely, um, but uh, I love love when I'm here, honestly. Check it out is on 6 p.m. Saturdays, 9 a.m. Sundays. Where can we follow you on social media before we forget to mention that? Sure, thanks. Yeah, so I'm on Twitter. Twitter, Mark underscore Saltzman, and that's Mark with a C. And I have this thing called uh, Tech Tip of the Day, where it's just like a bite-sized piece of advice, something you didn't know that your tech can do. Uh, and that uh, seems to be doing well. I just started that uh, three weeks ago. So, Mark, we brought it. you brought in a whole bunch of products you're going to talk about for Christmas, and we would be remiss if we did not start with the Huawei Mate 20. That's right. I know it's a controversial name at this point, but it looks like yeah. a beautiful phone. It is a gorgeous phone. And I'm like, you know, I, I've always learned in broadcasting, stay in your lane, right? So I'm here to talk about how awesome the phone is. But uh, yeah, I, I stay out of politics. Um, hopefully that will all be resolved soon. But from a phone perspective, this is just redonkulous. It is a, a gorgeous 6.4-inch Android phone, as you can see, with uh, outstanding cameras. In fact, there's three on the back, uh, like a three a triple Leica lens uh, system. And the main one is a 40 megapixel sensor. So capturing outstanding detail, uh, especially in low light uh, situations, which most phones can't do well in. It also has the first in-screen fingerprint reader. So you don't have to put your finger or thumb on a, a certain button or sensor on the back. It's built into the screen. And then third is the battery. I know it's not the sexiest of features, but like all those iPhone listeners right now are probably nodding their head as you guys all are all in the studio. Uh, it is the worst feeling when, you know, you've powered it up overnight and it's lunch and you're looking at a 50% uh, notification. So this is a full two days of extensive use. In fact, it's the first phone in Canada that has what's called reverse wireless charging. If, you, if we were out ha- hanging out, having a beer, and you said, hey, my phone needs a top up, you would just lie your phone on on top of this, and it'll charge it up like a power bank. Whoa. It's a fascinating uh, piece of technology. And we were, when we said controversy, it's because, of course, Huawei's been in the news for mm-hmm. one of his executives being detained in Canada. That's She's right. not on bail. Uh, there's been talk of retaliatory measures in China when yeah. it comes to detaining Canadians. And then there's talk of technology, which has sometimes been controversial itself with people concerned about uh, a Chinese group having their hands on stuff like sure. this and the sure. Canadians buying into it. Yeah, it's a is great it, point, yeah. Because the technology is that good? Well, I think, if, unless I'm mistaken, uh, I think every major corporation in China is in some way partially owned by the government. So I think there's some fear there. But we're talking about a multi-multi-billion dollar company, second in the world for in the in the phone department. I don't know if you know that. Behind Samsung, they're number two. Wow. Like, this is a huge company uh, ahead of Apple. Um, so they have their hands in a lot. They actually build the towers, uh, that cell, like cell phone towers across Canada. I don't know if you know that. 4G, 5G. That's, when I first yeah. heard Huawei was just so, a couple weeks ago when we were talking about them potentially teaming up for yeah. cell towers in here. So here they are with one of the best I, phones. When I first started hearing about it south of the border, I thought it was, you know, political posturing. I thought it was just trying to, like, make a point, you know, protection 
perfectionism. I don't think there's been any evidence to the best of my research that, to suggest that they're the government's involved or anything like that. But again, I'm a tech reviewer. Yeah. I don't, want, to say, to say I don't want people good. to go like, it. dude, you know, yeah. just, you know. I've seen the commercials that uh, Samsung is going to allow you to kind of do that. Um, oh, the folding phone, yeah, and the, and the back-to-back charging where you. Oh, can, are they? Yeah, yeah. So the, oh, so, that's cool. I mean, you uh, know, I, is I, that the is that the is that the thing of the future? The wireless and the reverse wireless charging. It could. It, could, it makes sense, right? It, sure. It, if the battery's that good and it has that feature where you can place it on a mat to charge up, that it can do other phones. I didn't know Samsung was doing that, but I have seen uh, in photos and videos at least uh, their foldable phone concept, which is set to debut in 2019, and. I'll probably see that at the Consumer Electronics Show in a couple of weeks in Vegas. It so, sounds like the greatest gig to get to that show, by the way. Yeah, you must, like, you get to play with toys. Yeah, I'm like a kid in a candy store. It's overwhelming, though. We're talking 60 football fields worth of tech. My word. I know, like, all the little violins are going going off right now. Uh, <laughs> but it is, like, you know, it's it's overwhelming, but it's awesome. Now, I have two kids, and uh, they've grown up in this kind of tech world, and VTech is a company that we're very familiar with in my house. Yeah, that's right. LeapFrog, VTech. These are companies that uh, really do a great job in straddle- straddling the line between fun and education. And this is called the Kitty Buzz, which looks like a smartphone, as you can tell, for kids. It's like a larger, somewhat larger smartphone that's very durable. You can drop it. It's totally fine. Um, but it lets kids feel like they've got their phone. So kids ages, say, four and up, it, it lets you take photos. As you can see, there's a little camera on the top that actually swivels between a selfie cam and a rear-facing camera. It's on a little 180-degree hinge. You can play 40 educational games on it or add more if the parents allow it. There's videos. There's music playback. You can message with your kids on this. So it is kind of like a phone. It joins your Wi-Fi, right? So let's say mom's at the office or dad's out or whatever. You can text, quote-unquote, text kids using the Kitty Buzz app on mom or dad's phone. And the kids can write back, add stickers, video, uh, audio clips. It really, it's in, really innovative. It's one nineteen. I've seen it for under a hundred mm. on sale, but it's one nineteen for Kitty Buzz, and I think it's great for those parents who would like the idea of being able to chat with their kids, but don't want to hand them over an expensive smartphone or tablet, an iPad or something, right? And is the only way it's not like a phone is the fact that you can't call anyone? That's, That's correct. It? That's right. Everything else is there. It joins your Wi-Fi instead of a cell phone tower, right? Uh, and then it's up to mom and dad if they want to unlock some of the additional features. You can visit certain websites that you approve. There's some preloaded kid-approved ones or parent-approved ones. It's up to you how how much you want to loosen the reins, uh, but f- like there's a little pr- pr- parental control section, if you will. And you don't need a degree in computer engineering to figure it out, even if you're not a tech-savvy parent or grandparent. I don't know. I just tried to use it. (laughs) (laughs) You just had to swipe to open the screen. That's it. There's two different colors. And yeah, there's like pink and purple, and then there's blue and gray. Do you hear from parents often? Because this is what I struggle with, is that I didn't grow up with this, and therefore it feels weird to say I'm going to give my kid something that's very much like a cell phone. Because I was like, nope, they're never going to get one until they're 16 or something. That's a good point, Lauren. Is it about just adapting to the idea that we're not, it's not the world we grow up in. So move on and give them some technology that might be helpful. There's two things there. One is, yes, they're digital natives. They grew up in this world and they're very comfortable and savvy with it. And we are what we call digital immigrants. We had to learn uh, this new language and this new digital world, right? Um, You know, your intern who's here is millennial. So she grew up with all this stuff, right? So she's like, no, you didn't. Okay. I stand corrected. It was was an assumption. Yep. Yeah, well, I got my first smartphone when I was like 23. Wow. Okay, yeah. I stand corrected. That was a really big stereotype. <laughs> That's like is that ageism or something. Like, you know, you're not offended, right? No, no, no. Okay, yeah, but it, I think it's fair to say. Look, I have 
kids who are 16 and you know I think a lot of your listeners they have young kids who they they grew up with this kind of stuff whether it's a smartphone or whatever TV video game systems uh, we had to learn to to it so uh, on one hand it's how the irony is that we're supposed to protect kids in this digital space but they understand it better than we do that's the irony. And then the, the second thing is that we don't want to give kids tech too early because for fear of, uh, you know, of, of digital addiction and things like that. It's a real thing. But something like this, this, this kitty buzz thing is really manageable by parents. You mentioned video games and you've brought a big one with you. We're going to talk about it in a moment. Mark Saltzman is our guest, host of Tech It Out here on 680 CJOB, 6 p.m. Saturdays, 9 a.m. Sundays. He has been a tech evangelist in this country for well over a decade, and we are so happy he's here. Our guest is Mark Saltzman, host of Tech It Out here on 680 CJOB, 6 p.m. Saturday, 9 a.m. Sunday. I said, Mark, that you've been doing tech stuff. You've been a tech evangelist for well over a decade. I didn't realize it's been 25 years and you got your start in video game reviews. Yeah, that's right. And so, you brought it Yeah, video maybe game. no shocker that the next... Uh product suggestion for for the holidays is is a new game uh, for the Nintendo Switch, which is, as your listeners may or may not know, is a portable gaming system that also becomes a home-based console when you dock it, when you get home. So you get a little, you get it with it, but it's like a little docking station connected to your TV. So it looks like a a portable system, and it is. It's battery-powered. You can have the kids playing in the backseat on a road trip this holiday season. But then when you get home, you dock it, and then it shows up on your big screen TV. So it's a very versatile uh, platform. But the game that everybody's buzzing about came out on Friday, and that's uh, Super Smash Brothers Ultimate, which is what we're looking at here. So it's a cartoon brawler game. You pick your favorite character, and there's over 70 now to choose from. But is Luigi still in yeah, that? Yeah, Luigi's okay. in there, his brother Mario, Princess Peach, Donkey Kong. You got it, yeah. And then you you have at it. You, you, you compete, and you see who reigns supreme on these fun maps. These are what's called Joy-Con controllers. They oh, just wow. slip off the side. Yeah, and that's how you get two people playing on the same screen. You didn't know that, right? No, I didn't. So, so awesome. to paint a little bit of a radio picture, as Kluche might say, is you have what you might uh, recognize as a smaller tablet, but on either side, they're miniature remote controls yeah, or joysticks, mm-hmm. game controllers that come off of either side so that you can kind of play it from a little bit further yeah. back. And, and you could two, two people players, can play, people at, the same can time. play at the same time. That's and great. then even on the TV, you can use those. So that's oh, $79 wow. for that game, uh, which is, again, Super Mar- Mario Brothers uh, Ultimate. Sorry, no, Super Smash Brothers Ultimate. For photography nuts, this is the Nikon Coolpix P1000 digital me. camera. It's it's a big camera that you would wear around your neck on a lanyard, like an SLR, a single lens reflex camera. But unlike an SLR, this is super easy to use. It's like a point and shoot, but with a massive lens. Do, that, in, do the zoom again. Sure. In fact, it's a hundred and twenty-five <laughs> times zoom. Wow. Which means you could take pictures of the surface of the moon. Believe it or not, craters and all. I got proof. I got proof. I don't Ready? believe it. Okay. I know this is radio, but this first picture that I'm holding up is what the moon looks like when you take it with a regular smartphone. It's okay. black. It and looks a dot. like a white dot. Yeah. On In front a of very, an eight and a half by eleven sheet of paper. Right. Okay. It's like a white dot. That is the moon. That's what it would look like in a phone, a smartphone. This is what it would look like on the Nikon Coolpix P1000. So it is a huge picture of the moon with craters, as you can see. It's like you took it through a telescope, like if you could manage an image with a telescope. With 125 times zoom, that's what you're looking at here. It also is great for macro photography. You want to take pictures of birds or, you know, uh, plants and stuff like that, like flowers, uh, getting really close up as far as uh, a centimeter away. So it's a super zoom camera. It also shoots 4K video really well. It's a huge sensor, but as easy to use use as an as a point and shoot camera it is uh 13.99 uh, so it is a what we call a prosumer camera so not for you know those budget conscious uh 
you know, um, folks who are who who don't love photography. Instead, it's for those who uh, want something that uh, fabulous can help capture the world around them. Yeah, with great quality. Um, this is from D-Link. It's a smart home device. It's called the Wi-Fi water sensor. So as the name suggests, you may gift this to maybe a new homeowner. It detects, it detects water anywhere that you place it, and it notifies you anywhere in the world on your smartphone. So if you have like a like A leak. A leak. Yeah. yeah. So as you can see, there's like a little sensor. It's connected to this 90 decibel alarm. But if you're not at home and you, you – you, so you would put this maybe in a basement uh, by like a water heater or a laundry machine or something like that, mm-hmm. a sub pump. And then if it detects water, which is the number one source of any home insurance claim. Of course. Uh, you are notified immediately and you can then minimize the damage. Uh, it joins your Wi-Fi. There's no monthly fees. It's under 50 bucks. And it uh, is good for snowbirds. Good How for... is it detecting the water? So there's a sensor here, as you can see, and it's on a long cable. This looks like an iPhone charger that I'm yeah, looking at. It looks so like, it's yeah, to it's, the wall? You can, you, choose, you, you can put this anywhere you want. It does the first generation model. You had to plug it in. This okay. is battery powered. You get two double A's in the box and it lasts a year and a half. And then it just touches and the ground? And then you just join your Wi-Fi through the app. It'll find it. So you put in the batteries, open up the app. And then it'll find your Wi-Fi sensor. You just uh, add, you know, you just set it all up like that. It's just like a super easy wizard. It's like a pill-shaped uh, sensor on the edge right. end of this uh, wire. Where and do you put that? You just put that on the floor and behind, like near any vulnerable area by a, yeah, a, a cracked window, by a, a dish, a washing machine. And if it detects moisture, you're immediately notified on that app. So very smart, under 50 bucks, as I mentioned. Super so, handy. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's wonderful. Cool. Anyone I know, I've had so many family members who've had to redo their whole basement so at a huge cost. Without the because, whole carpet. Because, not because the water, but because they didn't catch didn't it know. until didn't know. three days later it's or whatever. It's an example of a smart home. Like smart home tech is great for a lot of reasons. It can save you money. It can give you peace of mind with things like the Ring video doorbell. Uh, Wi-Fi thermostats can save you money, about 23% on your heating and cooling bills by uh, detecting if someone's home or not and then adjusting the temperature accordingly. You know, so it's just getting better and better, and the prices are dropping, which is a, a great trend. Yeah, my my uh, th- thermostat starting to learn learn our comings and goings yeah. as well, and adjusting accordingly. So it's spectacular technology. Yes, it costs money to invest in it, but it does have a payoff yeah. potentially. In yeah, the end. that's only forty nine bucks. I don't know what a typical insurance claim would be, or your deductible, uh, or whatever. Twenty five thousand dollar claim. So it's oh smart. Yeah, water is always the big one. So yeah, D Link did a great job with this this little guy. And uh, we only have about ninety seconds left here, Mark. Yeah, I, 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 I'm in the process of getting ready to move. I'm going to end up unloading some electronics. I don't want to just toss them in the trash. What do I do with them? Yeah, it's as easy as going to a website called RecycleMyElectronics.ca. You type in your postal code or your address, and you're going to find one of many drop-off locations near you. And it means that you drop off your tech to this bin that could be outside of a big box electronics store. It could be a school. It could be a community center. Uh, and you, when you drop it off, it gets properly dismantled in an approved facility. Everything gets shredded. Uh, so all the, 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 the precious materials inside get uh, extracted, like gold and silver and palladium and copper, and it goes all into new products. Your, that tech is diverted, diverted from landfills, uh, so it's, it helps the e-waste issue. Uh, and if you forgot to properly recycle your – sorry, properly delete your information from your devices – it's going to get shredded when it when you do it through an approved facility like this. Otherwise, you don't know where your information could show up mm. if you forgot to delete the info. Great so again, point. it's recyclemyelectronics.ca and 
you're off to the races. Tech It Out is on Saturdays at 6 p.m., Sundays at 9 a.m. The host is Mark Saltzman. He's our guest. He's got all sorts of great ideas. We'll put some of that video up on our Instagram as well. Uh, thank you so much for coming in, Mark. And thank you for having me, guys. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Our guest is a man we introduced you to last year. I'm wearing the hat right now. I've talked about this uh, with great uh, passion and care. I love this Winnipeg Thunder hat. Love and affection. Limited edition Winnipeg Thunder hat that was made by a local business. I got my hands on it immediately. I also bought a t-shirt for it. And the company was called Oak and Ore. They later did limited edition blue bomber hats. You got the Bud Grant hat. Love it. Cherish it. It's on display on my Winnipeg Blue Bomber shrine. So, yes, very special hat. So then I was saddened to learn that Okanor had to shut down. But the man behind Okanor, Chris Watchorn, did not sit idly by, immediately got to work. So I've been curious to hear his story. So, Chris, welcome back to 680CJOB. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. And congratulations on the launch of your new endeavor, Vogue Sportswear. Uh, you can find that all over social media, including a photo shoot with the Winnipeg Jets' Adam Lowry. So, first of all, with Okanor, I know you can't probably go into detail, super details, yeah. but the broad, in broad strokes, what happened there? Why'd you have to shut it down? Uh, long story short, it was a trademark. Uh, uh, we had filed for a trademark application on Okanor, and it was opposed by a, another company that uh, uh, had valid use, I guess, for their name. It was uh, a little bit different in nature, and I didn't think it would be a conflict, but as we went through the process, it turned out to be, uh, be a conflict. It was one of those things that was probably just uh, best to just move on and start something new, so... And you didn't wait at all to start something new. No, no. I uh, The writing was sort of on the wall, uh, probably the middle of uh, 2017. So I, I started to work away on that at the store when I was there with some quiet time and uh, wanted to hit the ground running. So we closed the store uh, last week of January and then... Uh, Next Monday, there started working on Vogue Sportswear. So the next Monday, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Couldn't no, even no wait. Off. Uh, yeah. Weekend, hey? No, no. I was, I was, I was pretty excited. I think to start writing the next chapter, so I got right back into so it. So I feel kind of silly for asking this, and I no. think the answer is going to be obvious. No, no, it's, no. The new name's Vogue. It is. Um, is the V? Is there a meaning behind? Yeah. So, okay. uh, so I uh, we went through the process with a, a trademarks lawyer, and and uh, we did a preliminary search on a few different words that came back as maybe being a little bit riskier to get through. So, uh, just doing some thinking. I did Okanor unofficially for five years, so the the V is Roman numeral for five. I really liked the letter V, and then Oak was just taken from Okanor to to give us Vogue. So I like it. I yeah. was checking out your last name to double check it wasn't Vator. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, do I just have this really wrong? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's actually a very common question a good question okay well chris uh, you know be, being a one-time entrepreneur and maybe a little bit still uh, it's definitely in my blood uh, what advice would you give in terms of this is obviously a lesson learned yeah, yeah, for yeah. you uh, maybe you can share your wisdom with others who are you know in a situation where what step do i take next in my pursuit of whatever endeavor it may be yeah I, I, for me it's been persistence is key and i think uh every good entrepreneur is going to fail at some point and, and though I don't necessarily see Okanor as a failure, it was definitely a learning uh, learning opportunity. So, I mean, you're not always going to win. You're going to get your losses handed to you. So, you just it's how you respond to them, I guess. So, so you launched an Instagram account called The Brand Build yeah. after Okanor. And uh, you sort of very cryptically documented uh, your your sort of process, at least from what I remember. Yeah. There was, it was kind of cryptic. And yeah, yeah. It was meant to be a tease, but it, it took you all over the place, right? Like I seem to remember you going, was it New York? Yeah, we went, uh, or I went to a few different places. Uh, it's very important for me to build these garments from the ground up and, and 
work on everything from fabric to fit. So uh, I was in New York meeting with a couple stores early on, people I knew down there, and, and checking out some factories in the Toronto area and Vancouver area. Um, 90% of our collection is manufactured and the fabric is milled in Canada, which was important to us. So wow. just looking at all the options that might exist as we grow the brand in the coming years. So. Does that make it the make it more expensive than to sell? Like uh, about, uh, a little bit more costly to make, and then in turn a little bit more expensive at retail level for sure. You the mentioned quality t- must be there though, right? Yeah, the quality is. Uh, that was something that was really important to me. If we were going to be launching something, you have to stand out. And uh, before it was, we were very graphic based, and this is definitely more of a minimal approach in everyday wear. So, um, yeah, it was just important that the fabrics and fit and, and the details were all meticulously taken care of. So you just mentioned how much of a passion this was for you. I'm yeah. curious: is it about it being local in the sense of it being produced? sourced from Canada or is it about what's on the product having yeah, no, that local I, I feel the, too? Yeah, great question. I think the story is about where it's manufactured and how it's manufactured. Um, anytime I can support doing something in Winnipeg or in Canada, it's pretty important to me. So um, right now that's where we at. As we grow, we'll have to see see how that happens. But the response has been really good to the Made in Canada and the little bit higher price point. So that's been positive and encouraging. So hopefully we can keep telling that story. We got it. We mentioned uh, you can see a photo shoot with Adam Lowry from the Winnipeg Jets. I'm curious to know how that came about. So we're going to get those details in a moment with Chris Watchorn from Vogue Sportswear. The website is VogueSportswear.com. And we'll give you details on a pop-up that actually starts today in a co- just a couple of hours. Macklean McGarry McNabb and Watchorn. Our guest is Chris Watchorn. He is the man behind Vogue Sportswear. It's a local clothing company. And he was previously involved with Oak and Ore. And we've spoken to him a couple of times for the limited edition hats and clothing that he made. He did Winnipeg Thunder stuff last year. And then he did some really cool stuff with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. And then Oak and Ore had to shut down over trademark issues. He's relaunched under Vogue Sportswear. And details on a pop-up that's happening today, tomorrow, and Saturday coming up in a moment, but Chris, in the on your Instagram page, you're, there's a whole bunch of pictures with Winnipeg Jet Adam Lowry. How'd you get him on board with you? Yeah, you know what? Uh, we've been fortunate enough to meet some of those guys in our journey to where we are. So uh, we just reached out to him. He's uh, he's kind of one of those guys that uh, I think sort of. Uh, Represented the brand well as being uh, someone who just goes about their business is what I like to think we do, and maybe flies under the radar sometimes. And uh, um, yeah, I just felt that he represented the brand or would represent the brand well for the first collection. So it's got to be huge. It's, sorry, Greg, it's got to no. be huge to have. I mean, you, uh, Andrew Ladd gave you a shout yeah. back in August uh, because you did some stuff with his foundation. Now with Adam Lowry, I mean, that's got to be a big boon for your business. Oh, for sure. And a lot of those guys do uh, do very well at supporting local. So anytime uh, those guys are about the city wearing something, people definitely take notice, probably more so than myself walking around. So it definitely uh, helps business, and I'm very appreciative for them uh, supporting what I'm doing. Yeah, and Adam Lowry's just a really a genuinely a, a good guy yeah. and that just goes an awful long way in terms of uh, building some communication and rapport with the uh with the uh, public. So how can we get our hands on this stuff? Yeah, so we launched the website last week on Monday, VolkSportsWear.com, and then we have a pop-up today, Friday, and Saturday. Uh, Today, 11 till uh, 7, and then Saturday, uh, 10 to 5. Um, Yeah, we're at 300 Ross, just beside Hot K in the exchange. Back to the manufacturing oh, hub of K. Winnipeg. Okay, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I can picture that Yeah, now. the event space next door there, so we'll be there. 
Cool. So yeah. that's eleven to seven today. Yep. In terms of the the competitive the competition in Winnipeg now, there's there are various clothing brands. The Peg is one that I can yeah. think of. They've got a shop on Cordon. Uh, North Flag's got their shop on Academy. Uh, you had a shop set up at the Forks in your previous uh, endeavor. But is it? Do you, are you guys competitive with each other, or is it hard to get that local dollar? Uh, you know what? Those guys have all been uh, pretty supportive of what I've done. We, we've had a few. Uh, I have a, a denim brand that I do, Olay Denim, that was in with Cliff at uh, at North Flag there. He's been really supportive. And same with uh, Stephen at uh, The Peg. I mean, I, I, it's it's hard not to be helpful in this. Everyone helps each other. So I think in the end, it's a pretty supportive community for for apparel, so. Well, I think of a shopper like Brett, who when he goes to one of those stores, ends up at the other store a couple yeah. of weeks later because you hear kind of like a word of mouth thing, yeah. right? When you're at one, you know, someone they're pretty good to say, like, we don't actually do that one, but you can go over here and, yeah. and get that, right? Which yeah, is, I think it's important. And I, I mean, I it's always been a positive experience anytime I've come in touch with anyone doing apparel here. So, yeah, I think Winnipeg's good that way. Do you have a like a timeline for when the next line comes out? Like, do you like to keep something out there for, say, three months and then move on to the next yeah, thing? Yeah, I think we'll do a bit of a seasonal release, but I think we'll try to keep it fresh and do something maybe monthly. And what, I don't know what that looks like yet, but we'll probably try to keep it fresh and at least have something new and exciting every month or so online. So, How have the- people been responding? It's been great, actually. It's one of those things I wasn't sure how many people would keep in the loop, but uh, it's been really, I'm encouraged for sure. On the, uh, We did a little friends and family thing last night, and it's, it's just really great. It's great to see people again. I've been working in an office for the last nine, <laughs> ten months, and uh, I enjoy interacting with people. That was the only one thing I missed, uh, really, from the day-to-day of the store, is just interacting and visiting with people. So it's been good. So to get people to come to the website and, and check it out, other than the hats, what sort of apparel can we expect to see on the website and at the uh, pop-up? Yeah, we did uh, a line of um, t-shirts, uh, hoodies, joggers, toques, some accessories, uh, yeah, gift card. We got a little the bit of The image of Adam Lowry in this one shot is basically every male uniform I see. It's, I'm going to use the word uniform <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, just because it's so popular, right? Like yeah. a really comfortable sweatshirt yeah, yeah. and then you have the sweats now become a thing if they're nice enough. doesn't yeah. even look like you're wearing yeah, sweats. True. Like it's a whole, it's a whole line of yeah. its own. Yeah. It's not really sportswear in, in the traditional yeah, sense just, as I think of it. Sportswear is sort of versatile and practical, and yeah. that's sort of, uh, I think you nailed the, the nail on the More of a there, lifestyle yeah. wear versus yeah. right. a sportswear, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, I'm not working out in my sweatpants ever, but I love them. <laughs> really? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to be really clear. And you're sitting on the couch eating a bag like, of cheese. Is it weird? Like, am I actively eating these chips? Yes, I am. <laughs> and I look good when I'm doing it, baby. Chris Watcheron is his name. Volksportswear.com is the website. Again, the pop-up today at 300 Ross from 11 until 7. Tomorrow from 11 to 7 and then 10 to 5 on Saturday. And you can follow them on social media at Volksportswear. Chris, thanks so much for coming in. Congratulations on yeah, this new Yeah, thank venture. you very much for having me. And I'll probably see you later at the pop-up because I want there's a couple of hats I want. It's Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. And Greg, right now, are we talking about international iced hockey? <laughs> we are, in fact, going to talk about international iced or ice hockey. And really, the greatest rivalry, perhaps in all of sport, maybe Canada versus Russia slash the Soviet Union in hockey. Greg Frankie is the author of a book called Epic Confrontation, Canada versus Russia on Ice, the greatest sports drama of all time. And he joins us from his home in Ohio, of all things, Greg. How does a guy from Ohio get so deeply involved and fall in love with this story? Well, that's a, that's a very good question. And it's one that I 
go into in some depth on the introduction of the book. By the way, you guys would make a great line in hockey. They could call you guys the M line. I think you'd be a media sensation. But um, I like I it. Let's that, just talk about that more. Yeah, I think. I don't know which, you'd have to, which one would be the center. I'm not sure. Oh, but, I'm the center. Uh, you work that out. I'm the center. But continue. How did you get into this? <laughs> yeah. So, interestingly enough, in 1972, in that big summit series, I really, I was living in Virginia. I didn't have a whole lot of knowledge about what was going on, but I do recall watching on Wide World of Sports the part of the fifth game of the series, the first one in Moscow, that Canada. So everybody knows, was ahead 4-1 to one late in the game, well into the third period, and then the Russians came back and scored four goals in a row and won 5-4. to four. And I just remember being very upset when Russia came back and won because just about a week before that, in the 1972 gold medal basketball game in Munich, I feel that the Soviet Union basically stole the gold medals from the United States in a very controversial game in the Olympics. And I was still smarting from that. And when I saw that Canada was ahead of the Soviets 4-1, to one, I was thinking, yeah, great, we'll get those guys. And then they came back and won, and I relived the nightmare all over again. In the intervening years, I started playing the game, and so I really, my interest in hockey increased very, very much. I just started playing because my brother couldn't skate. He was older than me and better than me in most other sports, so I just wanted to do something he didn't do. But it, it turned out to be something I really got more and more interested in. And then, of course, when the United States won those gold medals in the 1980 Miracle on Ice in the Winter Olympics that year at Lake Placid, that really turned me on to international hockey. And a few years after that, I had a chance to go. It was 1986. I had a chance to go to Moscow for a world championship with an exchange student friend of mine from Finland. And just the year before, Bowling Green State University, the school that uh, I attended, in fact, uh, Ian Duncan was former NHL uh, uh, rookie team, all rookie team member for the Winnipeg Jets. Number thirty-six, a lot of, uh, former Winnipeg or future Winnipeg Jets played at Bowling Green State University. They had just started a Russian program, and I thought, well, I'm going to be in Moscow. I might as well learn a little Russian while I have the opportunity. And I went over there and had, actually had a chance to converse with average people on the street. Found they were very engaging, very nice, and it just made me have the desire to try to learn more Russian. And a few years later. I'd spent a year in California at an intensive Russian language program, and I'd gotten to be reasonably fluent in Russian. Well, two years after that, I was encouraged by the, co the hockey coach at Bowling Green State University, Jerry York, who's now the winningest coach in all of college hockey history in the States. He encouraged me to go to this event in Boston. It was called the World Hockey Summit. A lot of famous people were there talking about issues in hockey at the time, and Anatoly Tarasov, despite the fact, the founder of Soviet hockey, mm -hmm. the man who was really responsible, who just had the 100th anniversary of his birth, just uh, on December 10th, very widely celebrated all over the hockey world, and he was in ill health, but he was there at this meeting that I was at, and I was the only one, because of my Russian-speaking ability, who could speak with him outside of the, the entourage that he brought over, and his daughter, Galina, was very, very taken with this American who was showing so much respect and you know, awe at her father and all of his accomplishments. We started a friendship there. She invited me to Moscow. I was able to actually go and visit them in Moscow. She introduced me to my wife of 20 years. Wow. And I was able to contact through them all the big Russian hockey stars and had a lot of in-depth interviews that are very, very widely 
disseminated in this book. Well, the book is absolutely a fascinating re- read, and my jaw dropped a couple different times as you're relating this story. My dad and my grandfather were also in Moscow in 1986 for the World Hockey Championships, and my dad's listening in Arizona right now as we speak. He tuned in specifically to hear this interview, and one of the most cherished items that I own uh, was something that my dad picked up, probably traded it for an old Winnipeg Jets painter cap, is this beautifully colored, illustrated uh, history of Russian hockey book. It's in both Russian and English. And so uh, the, 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 the symmetry and the synergy between our, uh, our, our, our paths and our love for both sides of the hockey fascinating me right now, Greg. But talk about Winnipeg, and you mentioned Ian Duncan, and I mean, that's, a, that's an easy one, but the, the role that Winnipeg's played throughout international hockey is mind-blowing, and I don't know if we really appreciate that, from the 1920 Falcons to the Winnipegs that both won gold medals in the Olympics to the role that Bobby Hall and his move from the NHL to the WHA played in that summit series. Right. Absolutely. And I think there's a, there's a lot in it for, for uh, local hockey buffs in Winnipeg, not only just because of the Canadian story that everyone's aware of, but as you mentioned, all these connections, by the way, our synergy is really symbolized by the fact of sharing the name Greg too. So (laughs) it just was meant to be, I guess. Uh, So as far as the Winnipeg history, so the Winnipeg Falcons, we're coming up on the, of course, 100th anniversary. It was the first Winter Olympics. It was an unofficial event at the time. But it's amazing how some of the Europeans felt that, oh, there's going to be some really close games between Czechoslovakia or Sweden. I mean, they really felt that they would be competitive with the team the Canadians brought over. And then when the scores were on the order of 15 or 30 to nothing, they kind of learned the facts of life very quickly. But that was the first major championship team that was entirely consisting of people that lived just a few blocks apart. All of the Winnipeg Falcons were natives of Winnipeg. They all lived very close together. They attended school together. They attended the same church. It was really a Winnipeg team, and they did the country extremely proudly with the way that they represented Canada in that first Olympics. We're coming up on the 100th anniversary of it. Then in 1932, after two more gold medals by the Toronto Granites and the university grads from Toronto, Every, there was a lot of concern about the Winnipegs in 1932 because they weren't this goal-scoring machine that all the other Canadians had been in Olympic competition. And their defense was their chief stock and trade, and they were very good at that. But people don't realize that the first miracle on ice in the Lake Placid Olympics actually involved the United States losing to the Winnipegs. There were two games in that uh, series where the United States was very close, and in the gold medal game, they were within a minute of defeating the Winnipegs. The first time they played, there was actually a a horn that sounded, and everybody thought the game was over, but it was because they were playing outside, and the the officials judged that the sun was in the eyes of one of the goalies, the Winnipeg goalie, William Cockburn, so they stopped the play. It wasn't really the end of the game, and Winnipeg came back and won that game. And then in the championship game, they were a, a minute away from defeat, and they scored a dramatic goal, and then they held on through an overtime period and won it. And it was, you could call that the first Lake Placid miracle on ice. The 1970 World Championship that was supposed to have been held in Winnipeg, of course, Canada pulled out of international hockey because of, a, of an agreement that was reneged on that they could use professionals in the tournament. And a lot of people supported Canada in dropping out. But there was a lot of, of uh, consternation in Winnipeg because it was going to be that one of the great 
international hockey events of all time. The Russians were extremely strong by then. They had many of their 72 players. Canada would have had a great team. There was even an attempt to get around the refusal to let the Canadians use pros and let them have some reinstated amateurs, which would have essentially been the same thing. But Canada said, no, we want to be able to use out-and-out pros. That would have been one of the greatest events in Winnipeg sports history had they hosted that. And the organizer of the event said, you know, it's great to clarify international hockey eligibility, but not 69 days before a tournament that had been organized for five years. Wow. And we was really unhappy that the people in Winnipeg missed the chance to see that great event. And then, of course, Bobby Hall, after he signed with the Winnipeg Jets, and there was the big issue about could he play for Team Canada. There's a lot that goes in there. People know in general what happened in the story with Team Canada and the story of the Canada-Soviet rivalry in general. But there's a lot of specifics that this book brings out that really clarifies and puts into stark relief everything that was happening that are long-forgotten media accounts. Like media journalists, really highly respected journalists who had really respected the Russians in international hockey for years and had been ahead of their time in the respect for the Russians. And then 72 is almost like, well, it's the NHL playing them now, so they're nothing. And they would write stories just dismissing the Russians and saying that it wasn't going to be a contest people that knew how good these guys were for years before. And it's really fascinating. In 1957, a lot of people from the National Hockey League, 15 years before 72, were just in awe of how good the Russians looked in their practice sessions. They were talking about how there were many of them that could have played in the NHL even back then. And then 15 years later, it was just this idea that the NHL was now going to retake and reclaim Canada's hockey pride, made everybody see everything through kind of a warped lens and people who knew how good the Russians were all of a sudden were kind of saying that they were going to be no match for this NHL team because everybody just had this myth that they had believed for so long and in the end it all worked out for the best in the hockey world and even after the first two or three games of the series when it was obvious Canada was not going to sweep the Soviets people were starting to realize yeah you know we're not going to win this maybe like we thought we were But what a great thing international hockey is going to be in the future. Greg Frankie, you're a volcano of knowledge on this subject, and we're so thankful to have had you on to talk about it. Thank you very much for joining us today. Hey, my pleasure very much. Uh, I appreciate it. It's available on Amazon.ca. It's doing very well there. Many other outlets, and it's going to be available all across Canada very soon. Greg Frankie, the author of Epic Confrontation, Canada versus Russia on Ice, the greatest sports drama of all time. The Start On Demand is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.